Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Yellow, one of the largest trucking companies in the country, shuts down. Sean O'Brien, president of the Teamsters, call it a sad day for workers. Biden signs an executive order encouraging inventions to be made in America. And today on the show, it's two labor federations, the Ohio and Maine AFL-CIOs. Welcome to the Tuesday, August 1st edition of America's Workforce, where we're available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Timothy Berger will be our first guest on the show today, longtime supporter of America's Workforce. He serves as president of the Ohio AFL-CIO, and today it's all about issue one. One week from today, voters will be going to the polls. Of course, they've been doing uh, early balloting for the past uh, three, four weeks now. And what we're going to talk about one more time before uh, Tim really pounds the pavement here is voting no on issue one to stop the political power grab. Now, this is the issue that the legislature, and we have a supermajority GOP legislature, and months ago in the last session, hey, we're thinking about getting this through in a lame duck session, didn't happen. And then that same session, they said, you know what, um, we're, we're thinking about putting this on the August ballot, but uh, in those, those August ballots, nobody shows up and they're too costly. In this case, we're talking $20 million. But lo and behold, they went ahead anyway and put it on the August 8th ballot. And uh, in a nutshell, what issue one will do is threaten our freedom at the ballot box it ends majority rule also one person one vote and it empowers special interests and corrupt politicians we're going to talk about all of this in every newspaper and a number of former lawmakers four governors five attorneys general bipartisan democrats and republicans have all come down on issue one right now the way it is if you want to amend the ohio constitution you need 50 percent plus one and you can amend the Ohio Constitution. If issue one passes, it goes to 60%. So it's going to be more difficult for people to uh, turn around some policies that they don't like coming out of the legislature. So Tim Burgo will be our first guest on behalf of the Ohio AFL-CIO. Our second guest is Matt Schlobaum. Matt is the executive director of the Maine, the state of Maine, AFL-CIO, the largest labor organization in Maine comprised of more than 200 unions representing about 40,000 workers. Matt has spent the last couple of years developing stronger infrastructure to build power for workers in his state. And uh, with others, he has worked to launch and staff the Maine Labor Climate Council, which is a union coalition tackling climate change and inequality. He's also a past legislation to create, fund, and staff uh, education center, a community education center at the University of Southern Maine, also developed the Maine Peer Workforce Navigator Project, which is a cross-organizational effort to organize and connect workers to unemployment insurance, high-quality jobs and training, and 
support services, along with creating a new equity-focused pre-apprenticeship program to connect underrepresented workers to join construction registered apprenticeship programs. So he's doing a lot in the state of Maine. And the good news is this. The governor of Maine, Janet Mills, just signed into law some legislation, historic legislation, to create offshore wind jobs that will pretty much jumpstart a new offshore wind energy industry in the state. And the best part, it has strong labor, climate, and equity standards. This was not easy. This was not easy. They had to amend the bill, and Matt is going to talk about that. The bill will responsibly develop offshore wind in the Gulf of Maine, and encourage new deep water port construction while maintaining strong standards to ensure good paying jobs for workers, protections for wildlife, avoidance of important fishing grounds, broad stakeholder engagement, and inclusive community benefits. Matt is quoted as saying, this bill is a home run for Maine workers and our clean energy future. It ensures that we will create thousands of good union jobs with great benefits and apprenticeship training opportunities. It also protects our fisheries and puts Maine on a path to clean energy independence. And some of the specs in the bill, it sets Maine on track to procure three gigawatts of offshore wind power, which, by the way, is enough to power 900,000 homes with clean energy in the Gulf of Maine by 2040. Now, that's one part of our conversation with Matt. The other part is uh, legislation to ban mandatory captive audience meetings. The Maine AFL-CIO released a statement celebrating the passage of LD-1756 into law and This legislation grants workers the freedom to not attend employer captive audience meetings about religion or politics, including whether to form a union. Under the new law, workers can simply do their jobs and refuse to attend such meetings without fear of being disciplined or actually fired. And that has happened over the years. So lots to talk about with uh, Matt Schlobaum. Executive Director of the Maine State AFL-CIO. Unions in the news, making news. This labor update brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. Yellow, one of the largest freight trucking companies in the country, has shut down and laid off all of its employees only three years, only three years after the Trump administration gave it a 7 hundred million dollar pandemic bailout yellow employed 22,000 teamsters at one point up to 30,000 and had been negotiating a new contract focused on increased wages and improved health care and pension benefits with the union at one point yellow's management went so far as to ask a federal judge to intervene against the union to prevent a strike. We talked about this briefly on the show last week. The uh, Teamsters posted this on their website yesterday, teamster.org. Today's news is unfortunate, but not surprising. Yellow has historically proven that it could not manage itself despite billions of dollars in worker concessions 
and hundreds of millions in bailout funding from the federal government. This is a sad day for workers and the American freight industry, said Teamster General President Sean O'Brien. He went on to say the Teamsters are committed to ensuring members are protected and notified with all the latest information. The International is putting infrastructure in place to help affected members get the assistance they need to find good union jobs throughout freight and other industries. The situation is developing. Additional details are forthcoming. So if you are one of those Teamsters, I urge you to uh, stay in touch with your local. Also check the national website on uh, what might be happening. Um, NPR reported yesterday that uh, Yellow missed its $50 million benefits payment to the Teamsters um, in the middle of July. And at that point, they realized we had some trouble. The company reported a net income of $21.8 million last year, and they had $1.3 billion in loan debt due in the fall of 2024, $720 million of which is owed to the federal government, according to the company's latest quarterly report. Now, Yellow received that uh, $700 million loan from the government in 2020 as part of a COVID-19 rescue package. In return, the Treasury Department took a 30% stake in the company's shares, which right now are pretty much worthless. Sad situation there. But again, if you're a Teamster, really check in with your local on this. And hopefully, uh, I know the Teamsters will do everything they can at this stage. President Biden has signed an executive order to prioritize domestic manufacturing for innovations that arise from federal research and development. The new Invent It Here, Make It Here supplements legislative efforts to address the offshoring of production resulting from taxpayer-funded innovations. Senator Tammy Baldwin, Democrat out of Wisconsin, first identified the need for greater protection of federally funded inventions last year and shepherded passage of her Invent Here, Make It Here Act which actually tightens restrictions on licensing inventions from Homeland Security research programs. In June, Senators Baldwin and J.D. Vance of Ohio, a Republican, introduced the bipartisan Invent Here, Make It Here Act of 2023 to further expand waiver requirements to all federal agencies commercializing federal research. Come in here from the Alliance for American Manufacturing President Scott Paul. He said, America's innovation has always been one of our nation's greatest assets. We have led the world in the development of the most critical technologies of today. By allowing inventions that have been discovered through federally funded research to come to fruition in an offshore factory, well, we cede our leadership and sabotage our future. He went on to say, we applaud this executive order, which builds off legislation introduced by Senators Baldwin and J.D. Vance. It is vital that we ensure America's taxpayer-funded breakthroughs, so important that we point that out, do not support bad actors like China. Instead, let's make sure American innovation leads to the building of resilient domestic supply chains and creates family-supporting manufacturing jobs right here 
at home. A investigation by NPR last year into how battery technology from a U.S. government lab was licensed for manufacturing in China brought this issue first to light. <laughs> if it's invented here, make it here. Come on. One more here before we break. Senator John Fetterman, Democrat out of Pennsylvania, is introducing legislation to extend SNAP benefits to striking workers. Now, currently, workers on strike are not eligible for SNAP benefits unless they collected food stamps prior to striking. The Food Secure Strikers Act of 2023 would repeal a restriction on striking workers receiving SNAP benefits, protect food stamp eligibility for public sector workers fired for striking, and clarify that any income-eligible household can receive SNAP benefits even if a member of that household is on strike. All right, quick break. Tim Berga of the Ohio AFL-CIO coming up next. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at IFPTE.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Real simple. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. All right, let's go to line number one. Joining us from Columbus, Ohio right now is longtime regular Tim Berga, president of the Ohio AFL-CIO. One week in counting. One week from today, voters in the state of Ohio will cast their ballots, and a lot of them have done that already, on issue one. And the Labor Federation, along with a number of organizations, well over 200, are urging you to vote no on issue one. Tim Berga, I know you're doing everything possible. You've... uh, Got all the troops going. You got boots on the ground. How do you feel 
one week away on this vote. Go ahead, Tim. Uh, well, thank you very much for that. And yeah, that is right. We've uh, communicating with union members and their families all over the state. The response has been incredible. We have a United Labor Front leaders and activists who think that trying to change our Constitution that we've had for 111 years so citizens won't have the right to amend the Constitution with a simple majority. It's just flat out wrong. So uh, within the labor community, the momentum's there, the energy's there, and we're just going to spend this last week making sure everybody gets out and votes and votes now. Tim, let me ask you this. Uh, our lawmakers said uh, August elections were, well, they, they shouldn't happen anymore because, number one, they're too costly. In this case, this election is going to cost taxpayers $20 million. And they're saying that, you know, it's the middle of summer. A lot of people are on vacation. Either that or getting ready for their kids to go back to school so they don't pay they don't pay attention to the issues and they're probably not going to vote but they they decided to change that around what are you hearing from uh, from voters on 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 what they just did to get this on the ballot are, are they are they pretty frustrated with this legislature well they're ticked off that's what uh, I'm hearing and I'm traveling the state and everywhere I go they don't understand why the legislature prohibited August special elections just last December because they're too costly and voters don't show up. And then they changed their mind and are putting this August special election on the ballot when college kids aren't on campus, people are on vacation, not paying attention. And they feel like that those extremists trying to put this on the ballot and those special interests that convince the legislators to do it, that the fix is in. And they're really ticked off about it, and I believe they're going to demonstrate that by voting no and, and voting no heavily um, once the votes are counted on August 8th. Now, I know the, the early voting in northeastern Ohio is five to six times what it's been in uh, other special elections. Are you finding that pretty similar in, uh, in other parts of the state of Ohio right now? We are. We're finding that in the, the big cities, the suburbs, and to some extent, uh, the, the rural counties. But this has caught people's attention for 111 years to stop the robber barons back in the day. And Teddy Roosevelt and William Jennings Bryant came out 111 years ago and said the citizens should have the right um, for redress if the legislature does not act in a proper fashion to go to the ballot. Now, it's very difficult to citizens to get something on the ballot and get it passed as it is. It's only happened 19 times in 111 years. But we ought to have that right as a simple majority to simply say we're going to now have to have a supermajority of 60%, and we're going to make it uh, extremely more difficult to get the issue on the ballot in the first place. I don't believe, Flash, that we'll ever have another citizen initiative constitutional amendment again in the state of Ohio should this pass. That's how serious this is. And why are they doing it? They're doing it. And where's the money coming from? They're doing it because of special interests and special interests from outside of Ohio are pouring in millions of dollars. That was reported this week when the campaign finance reports came out. So uh, we're doing our part to make sure that union members are aware of this. We're at the work sites. We're doing mail. We're phoning. We're at the front doors. And uh, we've got a lot of actions coming up this Saturday, canvases in 10 locations around the state. And if your listeners go to unionstrongohio.com, 
and click on events, you can see where we're having these canvases in your in your neighborhood. So uh, we encourage folks to look at that website and join us uh, on Saturday, August the 5th, to turn out the vote, because that's what this is about. That website, again, is unionstrongohio.com. Real simple, unionstrongohio.com. A lot of good information there. And uh, to Tim's point, yeah, you can uh, take part in the rallies around the entire state of Ohio. You know what's interesting on this? Four governors, Bob Taft, John Kasich, Dick Celeste, and Ted Strickland, along with the five attorneys general, Betty Montgomery, Jim Petro, Nancy Rogers, Lee Fisher, Richard Cordray. So you got Democrats and Republicans are all saying, not a good idea. Not a good idea. Having the, the bipartisan attack on issue one, that, that's got to pretty much help the campaign, doesn't it? Epitomacy of those that you had mentioned, those former governors and former attorneys general, epitomizes uh, that uh, the no vote is not a, a political vote. The folks who brought to this were partisans and are making a political but. Uh, you know, I had the honor to share the stage in Toledo last Thursday with former Governor Celeste and former Attorney General Montgomery, and they simply understand the underpinnings of democracy and the ability for direct democracy. And it's a simple majority uh, concept, and it has been in our Constitution for 111 years. So you're right. It's a bipartisan measure to stop this thing and preserve our Constitution and our democracy. And you know, when you, when you talk about taking away rights, Flash, whether it's workers' rights, and that's where unions come in, because when workers have rights at the workplace, their wages are higher, the workplaces are safer, and it makes their communities better and their families stronger. The same is true when you take away citizen rights. When you take away the rights of citizens, it hurts our entire state and makes our communities weaker. So uh, you ask a trade union, that's how they feel about taking away rights and how they feel about state issue one. And they'll tell you they're voting no. And Tim, let me take that one step further. You and I have talked about raising the minimum wage in the state of Ohio, which went on the ballot. I believe the year was 2006. And that passed by 53% of the voters in the state of Ohio. So if issue one would go into effect at that 60% threshold, we would still be stuck at the federal minimum which is $7.25 an hour. It's hard to believe that hasn't moved since, uh, my gosh, I believe it was 2009. Now, a number of states, like Ohio, have taken it upon themselves to raise the minimum wage, and, and they're growing because, hey, you know what? <laughs> There's a thing called inflation out there. We need to raise wages, and how people can work at seven twenty-five an hour is beyond me. But that's good a good example there. I'm just wondering, that conversation there that you and I have had and what I brought up right now, is that resonating among the people right now on issue one? Well, everybody seems to have their own um, opinion as to why, you know, they, they may be voting no. It may be a, a single issue. It uh, may be reproductive rights. It may be minimum wage. It may be redistricting. But organized labor, we haven't taken a position uh, on any of those issues at this point going forward. Uh, reproductive rights just got authorized to get on the ballot just you know recently. So uh, when you look back at 2006, when we were part of the effort to raise Ohio's minimum wage, the minimum wage federally and in state had not been raised in 11 years, Flash. Mm-hmm. Now, when that something like that happens, the people have a right to say, if they want to, Hey, let's do something about this. And we did in 2006. 
and we index the minimum wage to inflation. So it continues as the uh, cost of living goes up, so does the minimum wage here in the state of Ohio. So when, it, when it's in a situation where the, the legislature is just not acting on the will of the people, the people ought to have the right to go out and get the signatures, which is a very difficult thing to do. And should right. they get them, get on the ballot with a 50% plus one proposition. And, you know, you look at all these issues in the past that have not passed with 60% of the vote. What about all these bonding issues where the state borrows money um, and you have to go to the Constitution to uh, allow that to happen? And they're borrowing money to uh, build things uh, and create, uh, uh, invest in schools and clean air and clean water and build schools. You know, these are jobs for us. And they've proven uh, to be tremendously helpful in moving our state forward and with economic development. Look at bonuses for our war veterans. You know, those were constitutional amendments. Not These things are very difficult to pass with 60% of the vote. So it's a uh, solution looking for a problem. We are doing everything we can to inform and educate and turn out the vote uh, to stop issue one. I know the building trades brought up that bond issue you talked about there. So, yeah, so important. I mean, you want to build Ohio for the future, and that's going to be very difficult if this uh, if this passes. One more thing here, Tim. Now, because of this same legislature, they made it more difficult to vote. You now need, well, it, you, obviously you need a driver's license, but a lot of people don't have a driver's license. They don't drive. They take public transit. You need a state-issued ID, which you can get for free from the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Is there any confusion on that uh, as a result of the, the changes here in voting? Have you seen any of that yet, Tim? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of that. And, you know, this this voter suppression happened back in December, the same piece of legislation that said no more August special elections. <laughs> so, uh, you know, think about that for a second. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're doing our level best. We've got a lot of education information where it talks about the, the negative impact of state issue one on one side and the voting laws on the other side to make sure people at least understand what's there. Uh, I suspect because of the voting law changes, there'll be a lot of votes that are counted provisionally, which then creates, you know, more time and confusion into the system. It was interesting when I was with former governor Dick Celeste last week and um you know he's talking about his uh, his home state of colorado uh, his family still lives in the cleveland area but uh, he's been uh you know a uh, college a university president out in colorado for many years and he's in a very conservative very conservative county in colorado and he has 38 drop boxes in his county where he can fill out his ballot uh, to vote and drop it in one of those boxes you know i mean we have in in, in cuyahoga county one <laughs> So there's so many things that are just uh, making it more difficult for people to vote. And voting in this state has been safe. It's been lawful. It's been uh, well documented. So they're passing these laws simply to make it more difficult for people to vote. But we can't let that stop us. We got to make sure people understand what the rules of the game are and get out there and vote and vote no. There you go. And you can learn more at unionstrongohio.com. Unionstrongohio.com. Vote no on issue one. And that's all going to happen on August 8th, which is one week from today. Tim, great job. I'm going to let you uh, let you go. Keep up the fight. and We'll talk uh, when this all pans out. Okay, brother? All right. Thanks for having me. 
You got it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with another Labor Federation, the Maine State AFL-CIO. Big news regarding offshore wind and no more captive audience meetings. Back in a few minutes, you're listening to America's Workforce. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United United Steelworkers. Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the US, US, Canada, Canada, and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up, receive our shows on a regular basis, and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. All right, let's go to a line number two. We did the Ohio AFL-CIO in the first segment. Right now, we're going to the state of Maine. And joining us on line number two is Matt Schlobaum. Matt is the executive director of the Maine AFL-CIO, the state's largest labor organization. They have about 200 unions representing 40,000 workers in the state of Maine. He joined the state Fed back in 2007, became executive director three years later, and that's his position today. Matt, welcome to America's Workforce. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Is it it's Schlobaum? Is that right? You got it. Okay, good. That's a, that's, that's a good start here for the interview. <laughs> now, you know what? We've, we've, been, uh, we've been talking about your state for the last couple of weeks here, and uh, I guess there was a battle going on for project labor agreements, and I know you, well, you were a big part of uh, getting this Maine Labor Climate Council going on, tackling climate change, inequality. You want to make sure that uh, any of these wind projects are, are actually put together by skilled workers, preferably union workers. Uh, what's going on here? Is, is this a done deal? Because the last time we had a conversation on this issue, your governor didn't want to 
come up with a PLA. Why don't you explain the whole process here? Because it's a bit confusing. But from what I understand, I guess the needle moved in the right direction for you. Am I correct in saying that? You are very correct. Yeah, we are. We are really excited. It's been a long and winding road, but uh, our offshore wind bill with very, very strong labor standards is now the law of the land in Maine. Uh, we had the president in state two days ago, uh, and he was giving us a huge shout out for getting this bill into law and call, calling it a big, big deal. So um, here's the basic deal. You know, we have been working as a state to build out an offshore wind industry, a floating offshore wind. Maine has a lot of ocean, as, as folks know, and uh, people often talk about the Gulf of Maine as the Saudi Arabia of wind. There is a lot of wind there. And we want to build this industry right from the outset. There's a long history in Maine of workers and in core industries, whether it's shoes or textile or paper or shipyards, or we're seeing it right now with solar spending decades and decades fighting to make jobs into good quality family sustaining jobs where people have respect and dignity on the job and with offshore wind we're building out a new industry with an immense amount of federal funding and support it's incredibly important for (laughs) addressing the climate crisis and so we have this opportunity to do this right from the start and build, make these good union jobs from day one and not spend 40 years having to fight tooth and nail for basic, decent, dignified jobs. And so we got this legislation across the finish line. It has been signed by the governor. It puts very strong labor standards requiring the collectively bargained union rate um, and the total package rate on every single trade working on the offshore wind project. It incentivizes project labor agreements in the bidding process. Um, to bid on this offshore wind. Um, It'll provide enough power for 900,000 homes with clean energy. Um, And it also applies those exact same labor standards to the build out of an offshore wind port, which we are going to work hard to try and make happen. So it's a home run for workers. It moves us uh, in the right direction to build out the clean energy economy in Maine. And it's done in a way that uh, helps fisheries and tries to protect fishing ground. So we're really excited by the progress here and see it as a real um, huge step forward for working class people in the labor movement in Maine. So, so Matt, can you explain the changes here? Because in the first version of the bill, your governor vetoed it because it yeah. required PLAs. And then she came out and said, well, of Maine's construction workforce is non-union. So she pretty much framed it as not being fair. Uh, How did it change? Can you give us some details there? Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, we stayed at it and kept uh, negotiating with the governor and the administration and made it crystal clear that we wanted to create good union jobs. We also called um, the bluff on the governor for the things that were just not true. I mean, a PLA, is, as folks know, anybody can bid on a project labor agreement, you know, union contractors, non-union contractors. Um, but so we made some changes to the bill. We created a framework of labor standards um, that bans temp workers, that bans independent contractors on this work, that try to um, hire locally main folks as much as possible that says that the work on the construction of a port or building any offshore wind turbines um, must pay the 
collectively bargained total package rate. So if you take the collectively bargained rate for the painters, the electricians, or the carpenters, or the tin knockers, and put together, you know, the, the wages, the health benefits, the pension, the annuity, you know, any other benefits in there, that total package rate is what uh, has to be paid. So we're setting the bar, you know, very high. And collective mm-hmm. bargaining is setting that bar high. So there are jobs. Um, we also say in the bidding process for, um, you know, bidding to do this offshore wind work, the developers that do that, there's a very strong incentive for if you have a project labor agreement in place. Um, and then there's requirements that if open shop contractors win the work and can't fill it, um, you know, the first place they have to go is to um, a union hiring hall to fill that work. So, you know, it met the governor's um, desire to ensure, which had been the case all along, that anybody could bid on this work. And it met our goal of trying to make sure these are very high quality union jobs with good wages, good benefits, you can support a family on, and real training and apprenticeship opportunities. There's a bunch of stuff in there to try and build out our registered apprenticeship pipeline and support folks getting a good pathway into a good career. This is a good opportunity to give a shout out to uh, Lyuna. Lyuna is our presenting sponsor, Labor's International. Jason Shedlock is president of the Maine Building and Construction Trades Council. He's also an organizer for Lyuna. And he said that he does not feel unions lost ground by reframing the deal and making plain that non-union contractors can participate. So that's certainly good news. And you know how I see this whole situation, correct me if I'm wrong, the very fact that you're raising those standards, don't you think, and I know you've done some organizing, don't you think <laughs> that these uh, these non-union shops and the non-union workers are going to say, hey, maybe it's time to uh, go to the other side here? <laughs> what, what, exactly. What do you think? It, I, I have said that for the last month and a half. You know what? This, this is, if we can make this happen, right, we've got to get over permitting hurdles and other things and building a port on the coast of Maine is going to present its own challenges. Um, but if we can make this happen, there will be an enormous amount of work building out a new industry. And what you're going to have, we're going to need all hands on deck. And what you're going to have is union and non-union workers working next to each other. And that union electrician and that union labor and that union operator can all say, hey, do you like that extra six bucks you're getting in your check, whether it's for benefits or wages? You know, that is straight out of our collectively bargained rate. And if you want to work that way for the rest of your life, you know, why don't you sign up with us? So it is a tremendous opportunity organizing opportunity to bring folks into the various trades um, and to build out, you know, this new industry the right way and with good union jobs from the start. So we're we're really pumped about this. It does a lot of good things on the clean energy front, and we're going to keep organizing and fighting to try and uh, make it happen because, you know, this is not the end of the road and there's going to be uh, more fights to come to, to actually start constructing these things and to build this port so we can maximize the amount of work in Maine. But this is a great step in the process. You know, that was my next question what, what's the timetable for all of this and also another question here what what are we talking about as far as job growth on this because you mentioned that your state is the saudi arabia of women i love that line that, that's awesome i mean that just sounds explosive to me so okay so when do we start and and what are we looking at as far as when this uh, gets to uh, fruition yeah 
Yeah. So um, this is going to be, you know, a five, six, eight year process across across the board. So there's a, a research array process that the state is uh, working to make happen, uh, which is about 12 turbines. That'll happen in the next couple of years. Um, the federal government is currently leasing um, through the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, um, leasing federal waters off the coast of Maine and, uh, in New England for offshore wind development. Um, so that, you know, that those commercial projects will be another four or five years. And the, the key to maximize the benefits so that more of this work happens in Maine, some more of the supply chain work is happening here is that we actually build out an offshore wind port in the state. Um, and so the state's going through a process to try and identify where that can happen and seek federal funding and, you know, move through all the steps in that process. Because if we can do that, <clears throat> much more of the work will flow through the state of Maine. We'll see all the benefits up and down <clears throat> the economy. And, you know, there's, there's just, there's no other, I mean, these are massive, massive structures that you're trying to get 40 miles out in the ocean and you need to do that work in port and then be able to float them out. So Maine is well positioned to do that. And that's going to be our big focus over the next year or two to try to make that happen and start construction on that port. And, you know, as you know, building things in this country is never easy. And there's a lot of, you know, there's wealthy people on the coast that don't want anything built in their backyard. Uh, there's, you know, there's hurdles we'll have to overcome there. But this legislation puts us in a great place to have our whole coalition move full focus to actually building this port and starting to build, you know, these turbines out in the ocean, which could happen within two years for the research array. And then um, commercial projects flow after that from this um, procurement process that this legislation put in place. Because the legislation did uh, three things that it set labor standards on the ports. If Maine is to build the ports with these very strong collectively bargained total package rate labor standards, no temps, no independent contractors. Um, it set the labor standards and a whole bidding process and uh, put the state um, in law to procure three gigawatts of offshore wind, which is a lot. It's enough to power 900,000 homes with clean energy. And then it uh, made some changes to the state's siting laws so that we could actually build these things along the coast of Maine to be able to facilitate the offshore wind industry. So um, this is a huge step in the process. It puts workers in the driver's seat to help address the climate crisis and create thousands and thousands of good jobs. And the estimates are eight to eight to 9,000 new jobs in Maine, which is a big, big deal in a state, you know, we're 1.3 million people. And then the, you know, the spillover effects when you go up and down the supply chain of supplying those parts and all the, all the work that goes into it just grows exponentially. Wasn't easy, but you got the job done. And I like what you just said, eight to thousand, eight to nine thousand new jobs there. That's that's good stuff. Good stuff. Matt Schlobaum joining us on our live line today. He's executive director of the Maine State Labor Federation, the Maine AFL CIO. More good news, a ban on captive audience meetings. We'll talk about that next, right here on America's Workforce. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. 
Find out what it takes for Lyuna to keep America running at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at voidwaterson.com. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at OH. Dot AFT dot org. Let's go back to the state of Maine. Joining us on our live line right now is Matt Schlobaum, who is executive director of the Maine State Labor Federation. MaineAMLCIO.org is their website. So uh, doing a lot of good things. Passage of uh, historic ports and offshore wind jobs, climate legislation, strong labor standards, and to boot, a ban on mandatory captive audience meetings. That is two has become law. Matt, I, I would assume this was not easy. And I'll tell you, there's so many times that they take a preliminary vote when there's, or- and you know, there's a lot of organizing going on right now. And they said, yeah, it looks pretty good. And then here come the captive audience meetings. They scare the exactly. bejesus out of uh, workers. And the next thing, the union is shot down. So talk to me about what happened here. And I understand you're you're going to join a number of states now on this. Connecticut, Minnesota, New York, and Oregon also have laws that prevent employers from uh, discharging or disciplining employees who choose not to attend captive audience meetings. So talk to me about this, Matt. Yeah, this is another huge win. So, you know, the law of the land in this country since 1935 has been that workers have a right to organize. We have that fundamental freedom. And and the federal law actually encourages workers to organize and collectively bargain. Now, anybody who's run a union campaign knows that all too often it's much more of a risk than a right. And employers have figured out all the different ways to exploit the law and intimidate workers, and we have incredibly weak labor law in this country. Um, And so one of the core tactics employers use when workers at Amazon or workers at Starbucks or workers in the public sector or anywhere um, want to organize is that they will call folks in for mandatory meetings on paid time day after day. We call them captive audience meetings, and they will mislead and intimidate and divide workers and just run a very sophisticated campaign to intimidate workers and discourage people from organizing a union. And we had workers from nurses, from hospitals um, tell stories. We had mental health workers tell stories. We have seen this. We had museum workers tell these stories. And it's 
you know, sadly, it's very effective. If you're going in to work every day and day after day, the employer is telling you all these falsehoods and lies and half-truths about unions and making subtle threats. And then you see, oh, somebody who's a big union supporter had their shifts changed. And now they're working the night shifts and they can't pick up their kids. Like all the stuff that employers do um, is designed to make it harder and harder and harder for workers to organize unions. And so what this bill does, it's a it's a very modest and simple thing, but a really important one. It says that any worker has the right to strictly do their job. And if the company is going to hold anti-union meetings day in and day out, you have a legal protection to not go to those meetings. You cannot be fired. You cannot be disciplined. You cannot be terminated for just taking care of patients, for teaching kids, for taking care of folks with mental health issues, for being a nurse or a CNA in the hospital. Um, so it's a big deal because what it means is during an organizing drive, um, you know, good organizers will tell workers and explain to workers, here's the playbook. Here's what you're going to see. Here's what they're going to do. You know, we inoculate. We explain exactly what's going to happen so workers can talk to the co their coworkers and say they're going to hold these meetings every day. They're going to bring pizza. They're going to make it sound like, you know what, we've made some mistakes. We hear you. We're going to fix them. Um, and so this makes it so that you do not have to go to those meetings. It takes a union-busting tool off of the table um, and gives workers a little bit more power and a little bit more dignity and a little bit stronger rights to actually just go and exercise our fundamental freedom to come together with coworkers to have a voice on the job. Now, Matt, on the uh, offshore wind issue, the governor had some problems with that legislation because of PLAs. Did, did she have any issues with this legislation? Just wondering. Um, we worked with their office, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and the usual business set of suspects, suspects hated this legislation. They um, said the sky was going to fall. They said it violated all their rights. They, you know, brought up every argument in the book and, and they took that to her. And so we made a couple tiny tweaks to the bill, um, but they they were supportive. She signed the law. It, you know, 99% of what was in the original bill is um, what passed, and we feel great about the legislation that passed. So it was it was good working with the governor's office. We strongly appreciate Governor Mills' support and the, the House and the Senate for passing this, and uh, it's a big, it's a big, big win for workers. When you think about, you know, 2,000 workers organized at Maine Medical Center, which in Maine is a very, a very big deal, and the hospital just waged a relentless, ruthless campaign. And the nurses were able to overcome that. They ran an amazing campaign. But for months and months and months, they would be hauled in, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes in a group, small group, sometimes everybody, and just subtly threatened, misled. You know, these are high-priced consultants who get paid to try to get you to just change your mind a little bit and plant that seed of doubt. And so yeah. what we've done here is just given workers a little more freedom to organize and gain that voice on the job without having to go through um, the ringer just to be able to exercise what is a protected and legal right in this country. Oh, yeah. Union busting is a huge industry. You mentioned some of those consultants. Some of those are making three to four hundred dollars an hour an hour exactly that yeah exactly. that that's what they're doing to crush unions in this country it's yeah. amazing so the bottom line is this that they can hold their captive audience meetings they can do that but if somebody chooses not to go they can't discipline them or fire them that's under main law right now correct 
That is exactly right. Yeah. So the employer can still do these things, right? There's nothing in the bill that limits them from holding a meeting, um, you know, against unions or doing these meetings. What we can simply do is tell workers, you do not need to go to that. You are legally protected from just doing the work that you took the job to do, whether that's building cars or building ships or making paper or taking care of patients in a hospital. Um, and you have a legal right to not attend this meeting. And there's a, you know, there's a strong legal case for that. The Supreme court has long, um, you know, we all, we all care about freedom of speech and, uh, it's one of our cherished constitutional rights. Um, and the courts have long said that, part of freedom of speech is not having to listen to coercive speech. So you don't have to listen to things that are deeply offensive. And this applies that standard in the workplace um, and just allows workers to refuse to listen to employers coerce speech on political matters, religious matters. And that includes um, when workers band together and form a union. Well, I'll tell you, Matt, you got a good group over there in the main AFL-CIO. It's been a heck of a summer for you. I mean, I, I can't <laughs> tell you. Stuff going. I can't tell you how many conversations. You know, we're all over. We're all over the world, and we're heard right now in 49 out of the 50 states. We're still working on number 50, but we got a lot. We got a lot of interest in the right-to-work states in the South, and which yeah. is good. They want to know the union message, and they're hearing it, and it's working. I mean, there's a lot of organizing going on in states like uh, Alabama right now, uh, yeah. considering considering the climate there. But I'll tell you, you've had a good union summer. So what's next on your agenda? Like, real quick here. We don't have too much time left, but I know there's another fight ahead, right? Oh, there always is. Yeah. I mean, we are, we're building out a great pre-apprenticeship program to try and uh, strengthen the, the registered apprenticeships for the building trades and to bring more women and people of color and immigrants and folks who haven't historically necessarily had these opportunities for great union jobs and careers. So we're, we're running our second four-week pre-apprenticeship program right Right now, it's a multi-craft uh, core construction uh, program that exposes people to here's what it's like to be a carpenter, or a welder, or a tin knocker, an electrician, a laborer, an operator, and just expose them to all those different crafts and, and you know, give people the skills to be able to succeed and then directly place folks into their registered apprenticeship program. So we're, that, that has been really fun and really cool to build out. We're doing that in partnership with the laborers and the main building construction trades council and, you know, graduating folks this, uh, this Thursday from another 15 folks coming out of that cohort who will be going into good union jobs. So we're doing that. And then uh, we are getting ready for, our, you know, our next legislative session and <clears throat> starting in January and starting to think about pieces there and uh, going to try and expand organizing rights in the public sector and work on, you know, work on workers' compensation and a handful of other things. So no, no shortage go. of fights to come. Maine AFL-CIO Matt Schlobaum joining us as executive director of the Maine State Labor Federation. Great job. You take care. Let's, uh, let's talk down the road. Okay, brother? Sounds great. You bet. Appreciate being on. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, the Steelworkers and Lyuna Local 190 out of Glenmont, New York. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.